0: Thank you, Julie. You know, anytime you enter into a close relationship with another person, sooner or later, you realize that you have very different ways of thinking about all sorts of different issues. Uh, when, when I married my bride almost 40 years ago, believe it or not, uh, we were, I, I noticed right off the bat that uh, the garbage in the kitchen kept piling up, full to overflowing, and I kept thinking, I wonder when Brenda's going to take out the garbage. And Brenda kept thinking, I wonder when Steve's going to take out the garbage. And her family, her, her dad took out the garbage. And my family, my mom took out the garbage. That's pretty trivial, right? But over the years, we have noticed there are dozens of ways that we think differently about different issues. Let me tell you this. If you enter into a relationship with the God of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ, and you pay attention to Scripture, you will notice dozens of ways that you think differently than God on all sorts of different issues. Some of them will be small, some of them will be incredibly great issues. And because He's our maker, and because He is God, His way of thinking is always right, and it's always best. And that's why Paul spoke about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need new ways of thinking. Today's passage illustrates just how wrong our thinking can be about the gospel, this message about Jesus, and therefore about the power of God. This is the way I would summarize this passage, the argument of this passage that Julie read. The gospel has no boundaries and no brokers. No boundaries and no brokers. We tend to think differently about this. We tend to think, here's a boundary. This news about Jesus, it can move no farther than this. It can never reach that person or that group of people. And sometimes, subtly, we think that the gospel needs brokers. We need go-betweens between people and God that God can't really, he's not really uh, enough. His reach isn't long enough. But that's actually not the case. And our argument, our passage today is going to argue this rather persuasively, I think. Last week, we saw from Acts 7 that Stephen was executed because of his conviction that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you have full, free, unfettered access to God. You don't have to be Jewish before you can be Christian. So you don't have to live in the land and follow the law and worship at the temple If you go directly to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have full access to Him. And as Julie read here in chapter 8, that this great persecution arose against the believers in Jerusalem so that they were scattered. And in the sovereignty of God, it turns out that that's how Acts 1-8 would be fulfilled. He said, "You you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. That's where they were scattered. And ultimately... They would go to the very ends of the earth. And so our passage describes how the Samaritans, the most unlikely of people, believed in Jesus, making clear that the gospel has no boundaries and no brokers. First of all, no boundaries, Acts 8 verses 4 through 13. And what we mean here is that there are no geographical, there are no ethnic, there are no cultural barriers to the gospel. This this message can and does go everywhere. And so Luke first describes how this gospel brought salvation to a most unlikely group of people, namely the Samaritans, and to a most unlikely individual within that group of people, Simon the magician or sorcerer. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, And Philip went down to the city of Samaria, or some translations say a city in Samaria, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw, uh, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And so remember that expression that they paid attention to him because. Uh, Luke is going to repeat that expression two more times in verses 10 and verse 11. But that term means that if you pay attention to someone, you hang on their every word. You are devoted to what they're saying. It's not just some passing attention. You buy it. You get it. And uh, they did that because he was teaching this message about Christ and because he was performing signs and wonders that they just could not ignore. Specifically in verse 7... We read, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, they came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Good words and good deeds always produce joy, wherever they're done, wherever they're said. But the Samaritan's response is striking because of the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans literally for a millennium. For for a thousand years, there had been this rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. And for starters, the Samaritans were descendants of Jews who had intermarried with other peoples. And so they weren't full Jewish. And so the Jews looked down on them as half-breeds. You're neither Jew nor Gentile. And as well, the Samaritans had some, had some heretical um, theology. Um, they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they didn't believe uh, further revelation. They didn't believe, for example, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, and they didn't believe that, you, that, that Jerusalem was God's appointed place where you should worship and bring sacrifices in, in uh, Acts 4, Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and he pointed out to her that salvation is of the Jews. And so he said the Samaritans were wrong about that. But she asked him about worship, and he said, believe me, there's a day coming where it doesn't matter where you're going to worship. You, you don't have to worship in Jerusalem or on this mountain. You can worship anywhere. And Acts 8 tells us that that day had come. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to anybody, anywhere. And to illustrate this, Luke draws our attention to the response of one specific individual, a man named Simon. Verse 9, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Great. Now, when we hear the term magic, we think of sleight of hand or pulling a rabbit out of a hat. But in, in the Bible, a magician was basically a sorcerer. It was someone who harnessed uh, uh, unclean spirits to do supernatural things. You know, God is, is uh, the creator, but there are created, powerful, unseen spiritual beings and they can be harnessed. They're, not every powerful thing, supernatural thing you see is from God. Well, Simon trafficked in sorcery, and he amazed the people of Samaria, and he touted himself as someone who was great. And notice the wording of verse 10. And they all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And so there was a time in the, in the not-too-distant past when the Samaritans looked at Philip, I mean, looked at Simon, and they, they hung on his every word, and they said, "That man is the power of God." Verse 11. Again, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men. So now they paid attention to Philip's teaching about the kingdom and how it had come in the name of Jesus Christ. And they believed, both men and women, and they were baptized. And we get to verse 13 and we read, Even Simon, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. They were amazed at him, now he is amazed at Philip. And so even Simon, this former megalomaniac who harnessed unclean spirits to amazed people, he believed and he was baptized and continued with Philip. As we'll see in the second half of this, this uh, passage, Philip had some poisonous things in his, in his heart that he had to deal with. But Luke is very clear that even Simon, himself, believed and was baptized. Therefore, the gospel has no boundaries, it has no boundaries. Here's the implication for us. You are not beyond God's reach, and neither is anybody you know. You are not beyond the reach of God. Some of you who have put your faith in Jesus, you you know that. You are convinced of that. But perhaps others of you have not... Come to that place of entering into a relationship with God through Jesus, and, and for a variety of reasons, you may think that you're unreachable, that the God, there's a boundary between you. God can't step over this boundary and give you this faith or give you this, this power or give you this life. Maybe you've done something that you think is unforgivable. Or maybe um, uh, maybe uh, your identity is wrapped up as being above any one faith, I was sort of like that at one point in my life. You know, all religions teach, they all teach good things, but the idea that one faith, like Christianity, teaches us the way to God, I just can't sign on to that. Or maybe you, you know Christians that are really super committed, I mean, and they, their whole life is wrapped, in, wrapped up in following Christ, and you think, I could just never be that committed. I mean, I could go to church. But I, could, I could never be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Well, if I'm describing you in any way, the teaching of this passage and the teaching of all of Scripture is that you are not beyond the reach of God. And I would urge you to do what the Samaritans did. Just pay attention to this this teaching about Jesus as the Christ. Uh, Give it a fair hearing. Listen to it. Then, if you know any devoted Christians, I'd encourage you to take a risk and ask them, say, hey, tell me about your experience. Tell me how you've experienced the power of God. This guy up front said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. What's been your experience with that? And be curious about that. Take take a risk on that that, um, front. Come back next week. We're going to look at Acts 9. And we're going to see how a man named Saul, he went from Jerusalem to to Damascus as an enemy of Jesus, and he returned as a missionary (laughs) for Jesus. That idea may terrify you, but we're going to see it's an amazing thing. He was not beyond the reach of God. And so, um, please know, you are not beyond the reach of God. As well, neither is anybody you know Neither is anybody you know. Uh, you know, I have people in my life, and when I think of them, I just think, there's just no way, there's just no way these people are going to come to a faith in Christ. And I've got, there might be people in my family, there might be people, acquaintances I have, might be neighbors, It might just be just dear friends that I have. But this passage suggests otherwise, that that is not the case. Many of you, in the, in the weeks leading up to Easter, you read the Gospel of Luke, right? We read that as a church. Do You remember what happened in, in Luke chapter 9? Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He told the disciples, go to Samaria, go to this village, and make preparations for me. And these disciples came back, and they said, they wouldn't receive us because they heard you were going to Jerusalem. You remember what James and John said, to the sons of thunder? They said, Jesus, how about we call down fire from heaven to consume them? (laughs) It says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Why would he do that? Well, Acts 8 is why cause Jesus loved the samaritans. He was going to reach the samaritans. He didn't come to burn them to a crisp, he came to save them and give them life. And so they were not beyond the, the reach of God. The disciples needed to understand the gospel has no boundaries. Therefore, you should not write people off and condemn people. Neither should we. We should pray for people. We should befriend people. We should share this good news and say, "This is what happened to me. This can happen to you." So the gospel has no boundaries. As well, the gospel has no, the gospel has no brokers. And a broker is an agent or a go-between for two parties that are entering into an agreement, right? And so we need brokers in certain situations uh, for securities, for real estate, for other transactions, Uh, we use brokers. But spiritually, there are no comparable brokers between a human and God. And that's what this passage shows us. We go directly to God through Jesus. Jesus. First of all, Luke describes how a couple of apostles travel from Jerusalem to Samaria to confirm the Samaritans, uh, that the Samaritans had indeed received the gospel, beginning in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And the evidence probably could have been a number of things, but likely the evidence that they had received the Holy Spirit is that they began speaking in other languages, tongues, tongues, languages they had not learned. That was the case in Acts 2. We'll see it again in Acts 10 and in Acts 19. It might have been another manifestation uh, as well. But what Luke describes here is unprecedented. Uh, this is not a pattern we see anywhere else in the book of Acts. The normal pattern in the book of Acts is when somebody believes or when someone believes and is baptized, they immediately are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but that doesn't happen here, and we're not told how they know that that doesn't happen here. It wasn't always uh, accompanied with tongues. But uh, Peter and John, they arrived. They d- they discovered that um, the Samaritans had believed and been baptized, but the Holy Spirit had not yet been had not yet fallen on any of them. And the most likely explanation, I think, involves the long-standing controversy that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And by having the apostles, who were Jewish, come from Jerusalem, where where the temple was, and they came, and God, through them, laying their hands on them, through them, imparted the Holy Spirit that would confirm that there's only one church. There's only one body of Christ. There's not a Jewish church and a Samaritan church. There is one body of Christ. The same Holy Spirit that had fallen upon the apostles in Jerusalem now fell upon the Samaritans in Samaria. And notice Simon's response, verse 18. And this is like a bolt out of the blue, right? Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them cash. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wanted to be a broker. You see how he misinterpreted what had happened? He thought the apostles... In themselves had this power that on anybody they laid their hands they could receive the Holy Spirit. Hey, that guy, I think we'll give him the Holy Spirit. They didn't remember, uh, these are people who had believed and been baptized, and they thought that he and Simon thought that they could sell the Holy Spirit, that he could give them money, and now he would have this power. So it's almost like the apostles had the Jerusalem franchise. And he wanted the Samaritan franchise for the power of the Holy Spirit. He still wanted to be the man. He still wanted to amaze people. He still wanted to be the center of attention. He wanted to be a broker for the power of the Spirit, but that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. Now, I think about the old Peter, you know, the one in the Gospels. At this point, he may have just cut off this guy's ear for, for even asking the question, like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. But uh, he's still fierce, but he stopped short of that. Verse, verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. So he calls Simon out for thinking he could buy the gift of God. And so because it's a gift of God, only God could give this gift. You can't buy the right to give this gift. And so even if you go back and read the account, the apostles, they didn't just lay hands on the Samaritans. They prayed first, then they laid hands on them, and God gave the Samaritans the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it was not a gift that Simon could obtain and monetize and use as he He wished. Notice how Peter continues. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And so scholars and, and commentators disagree on whether or not Simon was ever really or currently a genuine uh, disciple of Jesus who had received the Holy Spirit. And uh, we just don't know, but but everybody agrees he was in this perilous spiritual condition. Peter says, Your heart is not right before you. He wasn't a humble person before God. He didn't say, God, I'm yours, use me as you wish. He wanted the power. He wanted to be able to use it as he wished. He said, you are in the gall of bitterness, and, or some can be translated, you have a bitter poison. So this thirst for power and recognition, it revealed a bitter poison that needed to be extracted from his heart. He said, you're in the bond of iniquity. Instead of being free to serve God, he was still enslaved by this, this lust for power and for for influence. But, look again at verse 22, there's hope for Simon. Even Simon, he says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So he tells him, you need to do business directly with God. Not only can you not be a broker, you don't need a broker, you need to go directly to God. Repent, turn from this wickedness, Turn back to God and pray to Him, go directly to Him, cry out to Him, and perhaps He will forgive you for thinking that, that you could buy the power of the Spirit. And so Simon had to do business directly with God. Nobody could do this for him because the gospel has no brokers, not even the apostles. And Simon's response has been understood in a couple different ways. Here's the response. Verse 30, uh, 24, Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so some people think that this is an expression, or, or some people read this as an expression of humility, that Simon is coming before Peter and saying, Yes, I know I have this deep need. Would you cry out to God on my behalf? And, and we all need people to pray for us. Paul, on numerous occasions, asked others to pray for him. There's no nothing wrong with that, obviously. But in this context, others, and this is the way I lean, is that that Simon is telling Peter, uh, I want you to do for me what you just told me to do for myself. And so in that case, here's Simon just saying, you be my broker, you go to God, and then I'll be forgiven. Ultimately, we can't say for sure. Luke leaves Simon's spiritual condition unresolved. And so we leave this passage wondering, what happened to Simon? And if we think about it a little longer, we wonder, I wonder if there are ways that I inadvertently or on purpose imitate Simon and his foolishness. Here's the implication for us. You don't need a broker, and you can't be a broker. First of all, you don't need a broker. In Jesus Christ, you have the freedom and the responsibility to go directly to God through Jesus Christ, okay? You don't need a human go-between. And like Simon, there may be something in your pre-Christian past that has this death grip on you, and it has followed you into this light, your life with Christ, And you need freedom from it. For him, it was this lust for power and attention and to be the man. And for you, it could be any number of things. You need friends. Yeah, you need people to encourage you. You need other people to pray for you. But the bottom line, you have to go directly to God and repent and pray. Nobody can do this for you. Faith Manhattan Church can't do this for you. Pastor Steve can't do this for you. Your parents can't do this for you. Your Bible study leader can't do this for you. You have this glorious freedom to go directly to God and do business with him through Jesus Christ. That should fill you with with hope. That should fill you with anticipation. And maybe you've been passive for years and years and years, Maybe today is the day you quit being passive and you go directly to God through Jesus Christ and do business with him. The power of God is available from God. So you don't need a broker. And the second thing is you can't be a broker. And in terms of not being a broker, I don't really know anybody as brazen as Simon in this in this passage. Although I know some uh, prosperity gospel preachers that come awfully close, okay, you send me your money and I will send you the Holy Spirit. It almost comes coming across like that, but I would would um, I would urge those of us who have positions of spiritual authority or who are in positions of spiritual influence to consider the implication of this. And so I'm thinking about pastors, elders, uh, other kinds of ministers. Maybe you, you lead a ministry. Maybe you're, you're a, a parent, a mom or a dad who has spiritual authority. Uh, maybe you're a mentor to others. But just consider, consider your role in the lives of those that God has given you to influence. And my, my encouragement to you is to be very cautious to avoid filling a role in the lives of others that only God has be cautious that you don't fill a role in the lives of others, or try to fill a role that only God should have. And so, for me, as a as a teacher, when I teach a scripture, uh, I certainly shouldn't say less than the scripture says. But I should also avoid not saying more than the scripture says. I don't have a right to bind your conscience to things that aren't clearly taught in scripture. I may have convictions that are applications of Scripture, but I can't bind you to those things. God may have something so different for you, so much better for you, so much more healthy for you. He may lead you in ways that, that He hasn't led me. God is amazing, and I don't want to come between you and God and what God might have for you, His leading in your life, His ways in your life. And so, I would just say that even though we may have the best of intentions, we need to avoid coming between others and God. And so if you have a role of spiritual influence or or position in people's lives, fulfill your God-given role. Use your God-given gifts, but always point people to God through Jesus Christ. Go to God. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let Him show you what He wants you to see. In that way, you will experience the power of the Holy Spirit directly. God is powerful, God is strong, and God is good. Therefore, the gospel has no boundaries and no brokers. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would write this truth on our hearts. We pray, God, that as we think about this uh, amazing passage, that you will... Uh, just give us a vision for what our lives can and should be uh, through Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that we would experience you in all your fullness. We pray that we would um, just, just come to you directly. Thank you for the access that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would ur- urge others to do the same. We pray, God, that we would be a healthy church, that we would be a healthy part of the body of Christ. Thank you for the, the time in which we live and the access we have through Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.